0: Hey, how's it going, New Hope? Great to see you next Sunday. We're going to be kicking off a new series on the book of Proverbs. The title is How Not to Be a Fool. So I guess that's kind of a strong verbiage for a title. Uh, What you think of a fool is probably not what the Bible considers a fool. You can be super successful and smart and all those things and still biblically be a fool. So maybe that'll whet your appetite to tune in. Uh, But there's two paths in Scripture, the the way of the fool and the path of foolishness and the way of wisdom. And we're going to talk about uh, walking the way of wisdom and how not to be a fool. We'll talk about uh, relationships, friendships, family, uh, money, the power of words, good leadership, bad leadership, all kind of exciting topics. I hope you'll you'll uh, tune in with us uh, next week as we launch that series. This week, we're ending up our series on the life of Joseph. Uh, that we've been calling You'll Get Through This based on the Max locator book. We wanted to end our series with a story. We were, we were longing and praying for like a, a real-life Joseph story. And We found one, and you're in for for quite the treat today. I I had the opportunity to interview uh, Dr. Jerry Sitzer, who a couple decades ago uh, lost three generations of family members in one accident with a head-on collision with a drunk driver. And uh, he wrote a best-selling book called A Grace Disguise. He's going on to write eight other books. He's a professor of Christian history. But his story is really a modern-day Joseph story, and uh, again, you are in. For a treat so before we go to that interview, let me let me pray for us. God, thank you so much um, for Jerry's life and his willingness to give us his time and uh, to tell his story. And uh, and as we'll will experience through his heartache, uh, through through the tears, even to this day, he's experienced grace. And uh, his his story bears out what we've been learning in this Joseph series. and And may Joseph's story and may Jerry's story be our story, God. May your Holy Spirit be active in our lives as as we listen to the story and we interact and we bring those things into our lives as seeds to to grow deep into our heart uh, to bring uh, new ways of looking at ourselves and others and you. Uh, Thank you for this unique opportunity. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a privilege. Uh, Thank you, Jerry, for graciously agreeing uh, to be with us a little bit about... uh, Dr. Sitzer was a pro, uh, professor of theology and the senior fellow and researcher at the Office of Church Engagement at Whitworth University until recently you just retired kind of as you said you're still uh, you're still heavily involved in the in the office of church engagement. Uh you were there on staff since 1989 i saw on the website that at least 10 times maybe this is dated you were voted the most influential professor by the senior class so well done uh that's pretty that's pretty exciting i think that's probably one of the rewards you really cherish i'm guessing you have an mdiv from uh, fuller seminary phd from university of chicago your area of specialty is the history of christianity christian spirituality and religion in american public life that's impressive I don't even know if I have one area of specialty, so that you have three is really incredible. Um, So uh, you've written nine books, your most recent, that we'll talk about in another interview that we'll be putting out later this week. Uh, It's called Resilient Faith, How Early Christian Third Way Changed the World. I've started that. It's it's really great. You enjoy music, literature, hiking, woodworking, and you attend the Oregon Shakespeare Festival with your family every year. Uh, Sounds like we're we're distant relatives. We need to hang out uh, for sure. Uh, you've been uh, married to your wife, uh, uh, Patricia, since 2010, three married children, two married stepchildren, and eight grandchildren. So welcome, Jerry. I uh, I first heard of you or encountered your name when I read your book, A Grace Disguise, which I think came out in 1996. Wow. <laughs> it seems like yesterday I read that. I think you told me uh, you're about to come out with a new 25th anniversary edition It's such a remarkable book, and as I think of his pastor walking with so many people through suffering and giving them tools, your book is at the top of the list. It's one of the best I've ever read on following Jesus faithfully through evil and suffering, so I'm super grateful uh, to you for telling your story uh, so provocatively, so powerfully. Um, it's, you told me it's been translated into 20 languages, so you're getting letters from all over the world that, that, that say the same thing that I just said. So uh, we're principally here today as we kind of end up our Joseph series because the book aligns really, really well with the Joseph series to talk about uh, your story and that book, A Grace, A Disguise. So some people may know you. Um, I, it's likely they do. It's likely many have read your book, but many probably don't know you. So can you tell us uh, the story of your life that season that led to the writing of A Grace Disguised.
1: Yeah, we arrived in Spokane in 1989. I was a new professor at Whitworth. My uh, wife uh, Linda, my first wife, had baby number four a couple of months after we arrived here. So we had four little children, ages two, four, six, and or no, excuse me, newborn, two, four, and six. Wow. Uh, she was a homeschooler, and in 1991 she was doing a unit in the fall on Native American culture, so we decided to uh, uh, take a homeschool um, trip uh, and attend a powwow and um, meet the leaders of a tribe, many of whom were Christian, and one of whom actually taught at Whitworth. And Coming home from that trip, we were struck head-on by a drunken driver. Um, He was way over the limits of blood alcohol. And uh, he jumped his lane, plowed head on into us. Yeah, his car actually cartwheeled over ours. And his wife, uh, nine months pregnant, was killed. And when the dust settled, uh, my wife or my wife uh, Linda died. And my uh, daughter, my third board, nine and change, she was four at the time. She was killed. And then my mother, who was visiting us for the weekend, so we lost three generations of women in the accident. I yeah. uh, needless to say, it was just catastrophic. I mean, I have no words to describe what it was like. And it was hard for a long time. You I know, mean, one sense, it still is. And we're going on 29 years now. I'll come back to that in a little bit. So I had to figure out what it meant for me with an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a two-year-old uh, to carry on life and to try to create a, a kind of new normal in our home and uh, to grieve at the same time. Well, about... Maybe three years after the accident, a group of friends who had really been very supportive of me were very close to me. Good, good, close friends suggested, I think, about writing a book. Actually, my advisor at the University of Chicago, Martin Marty, did the same thing, said, you've got a fresh voice here. And I said, no, I have no interest in that at all. And uh, they kept needling me and saying, "Uh, this probably is a public responsibility you have. This isn't really about you. This is God's call in your life to be able to speak to the larger Christian community, actually the larger secular community, because a lot of uh, secular people have read this book. It's actually been used in some uh, psychology programs and medical schools across the country. So it has had a wider readership than just uh, the Christian community. Anyway, I wrote the first draft. It was 80 80 pages long, all full of theology. Uh, Those friends read it. I can tell you where they were seated in my living room, and at the end of that, there was this long pause after discussion of the content, and one of the women looked at me and said, "Uh, there's only one problem, you're not in this book, and you have to be. (laughs) That was really hard for me, John, to think about that. I felt exposed and really vulnerable And that's what actually led me to write, I inserted chapter two, whose loss is worse. And I did that to protect me. I didn't want to give the impression that my experience was somehow more severe or more traumatic or more spectacular than anybody else's. As I say in that chapter, all loss is bad, just bad in different ways. There's a kind of category of irreversible loss. And once you hit that category, it really doesn't matter what it is, it's always bad. Because you can't go back to what life was before. It's a difference between a broken leg and an amputation. So I really thought about this a lot and uh, finally decided to proceed. And it ended up being the book that you uh, read.
0: Well, it's 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 a remarkable book, and and um, yeah, it's twenty nine years we we grieve with you still, and we oh, we, we hope I with still, you. Too. I still grieve, John. I can tell. And I think, you know, as as I pastor people through things, I think one of the things I say is that, yeah, you're, you say this, I think, in your book in different ways. Your life will never be the same and yeah, it's never reshaped. Right. And, you know, 29 years later, lots of grace in your life as you're going to talk about. But when you tell the story, your voice still catches. Right. And that's mm-hmm. that's the, the the power of evil and suffering and how deeply it gets into us. And and yet God can enter those recesses, as you talk about, and transform them for good. You mentioned to me uh, when you heard we were going through. Uh, a study on Joseph. You, you kind of said. He <laughs> smiled. Then he said, "Joseph's story uh, got me through yeah. that dark season." What What do you mean by that? What, what did that? What What is Joseph's story? What did that mean oh, to you? I
1: mean, you said it with one word. You used "story." And what Joseph's story does is it helps us think about our experience uh, as situated within a larger narrative arc. And that makes all the difference in the world. Otherwise, it's so easy to look at uh, our life as uh, a series of disconnected experiences. Uh, Joseph's story tells us that those experiences are not disconnected. They're a part of a larger narrative movement. Uh, God plays a role in that, and we play a role in that. And it's the integration of the two that makes all the difference. Uh, You know, the punchline of this story, of course, comes at the end when Joseph says to his brothers, God, uh, you meant it for evil, uh, Joseph says to his guilty brothers. You meant it for evil. God worked it out for good. Now, what you'll notice there is that Joseph doesn't somehow erase or nullify or mitigate the severity of their decisions. They were wrong, and they were wrong through the entire story. Even at the end, wrong is still wrong. If anything, the experience of redemption and good makes wrong even worse. Mm. But it's enveloped by a larger narrative that, uh, uh, in which God keeps turning up, and uh, working it out in a, dem- a redemptive kind of way. That's why I mentioned to you when we talked to, on Monday. Uh, one of the most interesting parts of that story is a, is a little paragraph in the middle of it that's easy to overlook. Joseph's been in prison for, I don't know how long, 15 years. And boy, you don't want to be in Egyptian prison 3,000 years ago. Yeah. And um, um, the baker and butler, both working for Pharaoh's court, are thrown into prison for some impropriety. They have dreams. They can't make sense of them. Joseph steps forward and says, my God will give me the interpretation. He does interpret it. Uh, it's bad news for the uh, the baker, good news for the butler. The uh, baker dies, and the butler, the wine steward, is released and uh, promoted to or uh, restored to his original position. And just before this butler's released, Joseph says to him, uh, remember being before Pharaoh. And you can just imagine what's going on in Joseph's head. He's constructed this whole narrative plot. God has finally given me the opportunity to get out of prison. I mean, all the stars are aligned here, to use a different religious perspective. Everything is working out. And the butler forgets. Yeah. And Joseph has to stay in prison for two or three or four more years. That I'm going to say I think that's the worst moment of Joseph's life. Hmm. Because his imagination has constructed the narrative that he wants. And it doesn't happen. It's like somebody who marries... And they have this whole dream about what marriage is going to look like. And a year after they're married, their spouse gets cancer. And it just shatters their longings and expectations of what that marriage was supposed to be. Well, you think about this. If Joseph had been released when he thought he should have been released and when he thought God was promising to be released, it, the story would have been good for him but nobody else. He had to wait in prison that much longer. Um, For it to be good now, not just for him, but for the nation, for the people of Israel and for his own brothers and for the reconciliation that would follow. And he only would have discovered that by staying in the story, John. If he had gotten released, he had to be flexible enough in his spirit to say, even though it's not turning out the way I was hoping and expecting, God's still in this story. And by one thread, one hair of faith, he stayed in it too. And then yeah, God, love, later on,
0: yeah, I really love that line you just said. Staying in the story—that's uh, man, that's food for thought. Let me, let me let me press into the title of your book. Um, our our series, as I told, you, is based on off Max Licato's book, and it's his his kind of line off Genesis fifty twenty is that in God's hands, intended evil becomes eventual good. Yeah, your yeah. your book is called A Grace Disguise. So the idea of, you know, finding grace within something as horrific and horrible as you went through. Uh, the tagline for you, how the soul grows through loss. I'm not sure if you crafted that or your editor or the publisher did. But I think both of them are powerful. Um as you know, as, as, as someone who's been in pastoral ministry in the church for so long as you have lived, that's a disorienting idea for people, it that is. they get into evil and suffering, and, and it's horrid. As you said, it's it's wrong. It's not what God wants. God has nothing to do with it, and yet that's the world we live in until kingdom comes, until he overcomes evil with good. The idea that then God can take that, I, I use the imagery of God being a master junk artist. this idea of junk artists take trash and make art out of them. And it's incredible mm-hmm. what they can do. God mm-hmm. takes stuff and says, huh, what could this become? What, what does that look like for you personally in your story? What is some of the grace that was disguised? And I guess kind of what hope can you give for people is that's a disorienting thought as they look at their own lives and the pit that they're in or the prison that they're in. uh, Where's hope for finding grace there?
1: Well, uh, in my experience at first, there was no hope and not much grace, (laughs) at least none that was observable to me. And I think it sends us a cue that we need to give ourselves to suffering. Now, there are bad and good ways to do that. One bad way is we indulge ourselves so much that we turn ourselves into nothing but victims, and we think our experience has been worse than everybody else's. That's a bad way. Mm. Uh, A better way is just to recognize I've gone through a horrific loss here, and I need to give myself to that. I need to be present to it. Um, Time does not heal. Time is a medium in which healing takes place. I've met people 25 years after a tragedy, and they're worse than they were than the day after it occurred. Uh, They've collapsed in on themselves, and they keep shrinking as, as human beings. Their soul grows smaller and smaller until it's ready to disappear. I've met other people after 25 years, and they're some of the most glorious and noble people I've ever met in my life. Time does nothing Time provides a medium in which healing can take place. Eventually, I think, uh, we gain a sense that a story is emerging, a redemptive story, not in the first week, not in the first month, but something begins to emerge. So in our hallway, uh, it's a fairly long hallway, we have on both sides photos. It's a photo gallery. Uh, At the beginning of one side of the hallway, is a beautiful, um, a beautiful photos of my first wife, my daughter Diana Jane, and my mother. Uh, we have photos of the six of us together when we were a young family. We have photos of me, of the, my three kids, and me on backpacking trips when they were really little. I look like this tired and haggard father, which of course I was. And you see, you see my children grow, you see their eyes take on light after a while. Uh, Then there's the photo of my wedding to Patricia 10 years ago. There's the photos of all of the kids' weddings because my three and her two are all married, and they were all in each other's weddings. Mm -hmm. We start to have photos of grandchildren. You see see what I mean? Mm -hmm. You gain a sense that a story is emerging, and you've got to go with that story. Now, it's not going to be the one that you designed in your head. But that doesn't mean it's a it's a lesser story. It's a different story. And it can be beautiful. And I will say, in my case, it has been beautiful, but not right away. It was uh, really hard. Redemption does not nullify evil. It envelops it.
0: Wow. that's You can tweet that. And I don't know if you tweet, but you know, that's, that's, uh, a, that's, a, that's right, uh, <laughs> we can, we can get you rolling on that, Jerry. We have a lot of followers. You, you said to me, uh, thank you for that. That was just really brilliant. Um, I'm going to have to go back and listen to my own interview here and, and take notes um you You told me the other day that one of the things that is mentioned most often in the letters you get from all over the world, and what a privilege I imagine that must be to know how you're telling your story and finding the courage to tell it has affected so many um but you said that that the, the some of the metaphors you mentioned in your book and use have been um really provocative and powerful for people transformative um are there one or two i know you wrote it 25 years ago but maybe since you're going back and re-editing and now that um that stick in your mind and heart that people mention uh these ideas these word pictures that you came up with throughout your book
1: yeah actually quite a few i have Uh, i'll mention three very briefly uh all were actually dreams i had so one of the ways that god worked in my life was through uh kind of waking dreams i was really dreaming one was that I'm running frantically uh, after a sun that's setting, and uh, emotionally, I want to stay in the light, um, and I'm, I'm terrified. I, I, I'm running as fast as I can so that the sun will not beat me, beat me to the horizon. Well, obviously, it does. And finally, I stop and watch as the sun sinks below the horizon, and then I turn and look over my shoulder at the darkness coming over me. And uh, I woke up and I thought, John, that I would be living in existential darkness for the rest of my life. I cannot, I cannot tell you how terrified I was in that moment. Uh, uh, in existential darkness, the kind that will never leave you, the kind that, that, that covers your soul. And uh, I talked to my sister, who's one of my best friends, uh, about this uh, the next day. And she said, you know, Jerry, this could be a cue for you. As long as you, as long as you're walking west to stay in the light or searching after the light, you're actually going to be in the darkness longer. But if you have the courage to turn east, and plunge directly into the darkness, all the sooner will you come to the sunrise. Wow! And there's actually a poem written by John Donne. He's a 17th century, 18th century metaphysical poet. He was an Anglican minister. In fact, he was dean of the cathedral, St Paul's Cathedral. In London, and uh, he writes a, a poem, and in the poem, uh, it 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 makes the distinction between east and west on a map and east and west on a globe. Mm. On a map, the farther you go or the more you go one direction, the farther you get from the other because it's flat. Mm. But in a globe, you follow one and it circles the globe and meets the other. Mm. And I realized then that I had to somehow find the grace to be able to just plunge into the darkness and let that loss have its way with me. Yeah. Now there are some safeguards, right? You've got to, you've got to have a community of friends. There has to be some degree of psychological health. Um, I'm not sure everyone can do this. I think people that suffer from chronic depression are probably going to get me- need to get medication and need to find a good therapist. Um, so I think there are some qualifications to that, but generally speaking, the sooner we're willing to face the loss and plunge into the darkness, the sooner we begin to come to the sunrise. That's that's one. Yeah. Another one was this uh, uh, dream I had of looking out at my backyard. We have a great backyard, beautiful gardens. We have a we live in a piece of property and there's this old big oak tree. It's got swings and and uh, places for picnics underneath. You, you get the idea. One hundred and fifty year old oak tree stately and big and beautiful like a home and it gets diseased and it falls and it's, it has to be cut down. And I look out the the kitchen window and all I see is this empty space and a stump. And that becomes a metaphor for the emptiness of my life. The Oak tree is taken away. It's empty space. There's nothing there. And then it occurred to me, um, Maybe you need to plant around the the stump, start new life, plant flowers, plant grass, let the stump remain, let it be a metaphor for what you've lost, but there's still space there to plant something new. And that's really been my experience, John. Uh, The stump is still there. I still cry. Uh, uh, Just a week ago, we celebrated my 70th birthday and our whole gang, all the adults were together for a banquet all 12 of us together, and there were a lot of tears, and some of those tears were tears of sadness. Yeah. But <laughs> around my table were 12 adults, all my kids, my stepkids, all married, all with families of their own, and there was so much sweetness and love and laughter and joy and shared faith there. Stump, Newgard that's good enough. i'll just give you those two
0: yeah thank you that's that's beautiful um let's let's do a little uh, i i got this idea i listened to a podcast called on script where they interview theologians and uh they do a little speed round so i want to just kind of break it up uh let people get to know you a little bit more than what they already are today so the goal to speed round this will just be like two minutes here but um I'll ask you a couple short questions and the speed round is you can't give long answers you have to give a really quick answer and you can't defend your answer you just have to give it just let okay. it be which is hard for thinkers and theologians right i, I know so, <laughs> all right so here we go speed round not
1: tweeters though <laughs> that's
0: right that's right what's your your hiker what's your favorite hiking spot in the pacific northwest
1: um the um um a meandering meadow is a gorgeous little private meadow. Above it is a ridge that overlooks Glacier Peak. It's gorgeous, right. and hardly ever visited. I did it with my kids when we were backpacking, many years ago. Sounds beautiful. Coffee or tea? Coffee, for sure, every morning. Very I've good. not missed a morning in 45 years. I, mean, even when I, had I knew one. you were a
0: godly man, Jerry, but now it's verified. <laughs> um, favorite novel?
1: I have two, Eighth Day by Thornton Wilder and Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. Wow.
0: I'm making my way through all of the Port William series right now. So that's one of my quarantine tasks. I'm, I'm giving them away as gifts. So the church has heard me talk about that in sermons, but maybe this will be another indication. Um, best book on suffering other than your own?
1: A novel written by Michael O'Brien, not well known. It's called Island of the World. Very long and really hard to read, and absolutely beautiful. Okay.
0: I learned the world. If you could uh, correct one misconception about God, what would it be?
1: Um, our tendency to be reductionistic in the way we think about God. God is all one thing or all the other. I think we need to learn to live within truth tensions. God is sovereign, God is human through Jesus Christ.
0: Uh, last one, if you could choose three famous people, living or dead to have a meal with, who would they be?
1: Uh, Perpetua, and a famous early Christian martyr.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, St. Augustine mm. And um, William Wilberforce. Oh,
0: that's a good. That'll be a good, a good dinner conversation. All right, let's thank you for that. Let's jump back in. Um, we'll, let's get a little more. Not that this hasn't been really practical already, but kind of pastoral advice. Uh, there'll be people that are listening today in two camps. Um, one will be in the midst of a, I call it acute suffering. We're all suffering to a degree or or, or not on this earth in, in skin and bones, but acute suffering. So they're in the throes of it. Uh, and there'll be those that are caring for people in acute suffering. Um, you're, a, you're a spouse, you're a sibling, mm-hmm. you're a good friend, you're in their life group. Um, <laughs> I've witnessed a lot of people meaning well, saying terrible things and doing terrible things to people in acute suffering. So I guess what would you say as someone who's been through that, talked to so many people because of your book, they're in the midst of it. What what What's some advice you would give for those two groups? people in the midst of acute suffering and people caring for people. Well,
1: let me start with the latter category, the, those that are caring, what I call secondary sufferers. Um, I, I would say that the circle is needs to be small. And therefore, when we uh, have a person we know go through a significant irreversible loss, Um, It's going to be clear to us pretty early on whether we're going to be in the circle of support or not. And we can't insert ourselves if we don't belong. We need to be careful there. Even in my case, considering my experience, when it comes right down to it, uh, I'm not on the team for the long haul in the case of most people. They'll read my book. They might talk to me. They might write me a letter. And if people want to write to me long-term, I say, no, find people close to you. Find people you're living with. And that's going to be your team of support. If you are on that team, be present. Don't talk. Just be present. Sooner or later, questions are going to come up anyway. And then you can become a conversation partner. But it's not going to be right away. People don't want answers. They want presence, and they need presence, and they need consistent presence, but it needs to be—it can only be with a few people. It's too exhausting to have too many in your lives. I remember I taught a huge Sunday school class uh, when the accident occurred, and about 400 people in the sanctuary of our church, and about two months after the accident, I I started teaching again, and I said to them, I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking about this experience— But then don't ask me anymore because I'm exhausted answering the phone all the time. I can't do it. And the people who really became a part of my, quote, team, um, maybe seven or eight people, that was it. Mm. I couldn't I couldn't handle any more than that. And they were wise enough just to be present. Mm. And then sooner or later, you know, conversations would emerge and we'd go in all kinds of directions. When it comes to those who are experiencing acute suffering Oh, boy, I say stay in it and stay at it. Uh, Don't have any kind of expectation that, uh, you know, three months, six months, it's going to be a lifetime. You don't get over it. You grow into it. You learn to wear it better. You learn to carry it and it becomes lighter than it did before. I still carry it, John. I still cry. I was sitting on my port swing just a week ago. In fact, it was Father's Day, not even a week ago, uh, yesterday. And I was praying and thanking God for the gifts of my life. And I thought about my dying Jane, and I started to cry. 29 years. 29 years. And I ache for her. I haven't gotten over anything, but I've grown into it. It's Lighter now, and it's sweeter than it used to be. So stay at it, uh, stay in it. And then secondly would be learn to ritualize it. That is figure out practices, music you listen to, books that you read, time during each day or each week when you can be still and quiet, and you can ritualize it so you have the kinds of uh, tools you need strategies you need to be in this for the long haul, rather than falling apart and thinking that after three or six months, some kind of magic wand is going to go over you and everything is going to be happy from uh, then on. Um, That would be a second thing, uh, ritualizing. Um, And find help. Find help, could be a therapist, could be a pastor. In my case, I had a small group of people who surrounded me. I'm still meeting with them, John. 29 years later, one of the guys in it, a guy named Ron, was one of my key supports, he and his wife. Um, They were very much involved in my wedding 10 years ago. Then Julie, his wife, died of cancer, and I just did his second wedding. Mm -hmm. A lot of pain and sorrow and tears there. A lot of beauty. That's what community is. You do life with people over the long haul. Find help.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Jerry. And you live that out. I I, I know that you, uh, you take a group of students who are used to up on a uh, kind of a camping teaching experience where you do the Benedictine practices. And again, mm-hmm. I've, I've been experiencing some of those the last couple of years, and, and it's beautiful how you exemplify that in your life. So last question, I wish we could talk all day, um, but last question for now. Um, I heard you, when we chatted the other day, you said this and it's, I've been pondering it. Uh, you you kind of said people get these these odd conceptions of God that are warped and, and certainly we all have warped conceptions of God. And then, and then they get upset when God isn't that thing, <laughs> you know, yeah. we're kind of in this tailspin. So as you, you're a thoughtful guy, you're a scholar, you got a PhD, you were walking with the Lord and deep in your faith when the accident happened. Um, how, but afterwards, now 29 years later, as you continue to grow, um, how is your, view of God, your relationship with God? How has it changed and morphed and developed? You certainly see that in the life of Joseph throughout the 13th chapter. Mm -hmm. What's that experience been like for you?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, that probably the the greatest barrier I faced early on, uh, because I come from a Calvinist background, was the sovereignty of God. Uh, God um, was very metallic to me and remote and mechanical, like a force, and terrifying. I had a, I have a picture in my mind of a tall, steep, uh, no, a sheer icy cliff, mm. windswept, and inaccessible, mm. and unclimbable, uh, um, kind of looming over me, and I was terrified by it. Um, I don't believe any less in the sovereignty of God now, but what happened is I've grown um, significantly in my appreciation for how God chose to come to us as Jesus Christ. The incarnation has become such a powerful idea, really a powerful reality to me. I, I mean, think about this. If you were God and you wanted to appear to humans, how would you choose to show up? Well, you choose to show up in a way that would most reflect a traditional or a, a conception of God. You'd come and you'd be bigger than everybody else and better and wiser and stronger and everything else. You'd be an Augustus. You'd be Alexander the Great. You'd be Socrates. You'd be Hercules. Because after all, that's what God is, right? Us and better, us and bigger, something like that. And God chose the opposite. I mean, this is unbelievable to think about. God chose to be born in a stable. God chose as Jesus Christ to suffer death on a cross. Uh, This is so counterintuitive to everything we imagine about God. And suddenly I realized that this icy, metallic, cold, windswept cliff became something accessible, close, near, warm, gracious, humble. God being humble. We never put those together. But the incarnation tells us that they belong together. The true understanding of who god is so i would say the incarnation uh saved a lot of my theology it didn't so much change it
0: it saved it that's really beautiful uh thank you uh jerry i know i can't imagine how many interviews and letters and stories how many times you've told your story i'm sure it can be wearisome at times but there's a fidelity and a faithfulness and a stewardship that you continue to do that after 29 years. And as you're crafting the 25th anniversary edition of your book, may may God's spirit be upon you as that comes out. And all you New Hopers, I'm, I'm sure that you thoroughly enjoyed today. Um, as a follow-up, please go out and, and get a copy of A Grace Disguised. Um, it'll be such a great follow-up to our series on Joseph. It's a different book than we've been reading, and it's uh, it tells Jerry's story in, in a much deeper way than he even did uh, just now so uh as your pastor i'm heavily encouraging you to do that to add that to your, <laughs> your toolbox and uh stay tuned uh later this week uh, we'll have a follow-up interview uh, with dr sitzer his new book uh, he's a church historian is on the early christians and how they uh, lived in pre-christendom and they found a way to f- thrive and flourish what could we learn from them now that we live in post christendom and there'll be a lot of Uh, food for thought there. So check that out. Watch for that on Facebook. Uh, Jerry, can I pray for you? Would that be okay? I would love that. Thank you, John. God, thank you so much uh, for Jerry, uh, my new friend. And um, uh, his book touched me so many years ago. This interview touched me uh, today. And I'm so grateful for the saints that go before us. And I consider uh, Jerry to be one of those in our midst, Uh, not perfect, as he would say, by any means and still learning and growing, but uh, being faithful to follow you uh, through thick and thin, uh, through the darkness, even into the darkness and towards the light. Uh, I'm so grateful for that father and uh, all of us who are listening today that may be in the midst of darkness right now and if not it it will come that's part of living in skin and in flesh and living on this planet until it's redeemed um, may uh, the things that were shared today uh, sink deep into our hearts um, plant seeds there, holy spirit uh, that they may flourish and, and grow for such a time as this I pray blessings upon uh, Jerry as he moves forth into a new season of life, as he continues to write, uh, bless the work of his hands. As he continues to be a a father and a husband and a grandfather, may he flourish in those capacities and may he find great joy. And please continue to heal and make whole. Uh, We pray come Lord Jesus and we love you and praise you in Jesus name. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great day, Dr. Sitzer. Thank you. That was incredible. I hope you were as deeply impacted by by Jerry's story as I was. And as you caught in him sharing a story and, and getting to know Jerry a little bit, through all these decades, uh, and and through the trials he's passed through, the anchor point has has been Jesus and and the hope uh, of the gospel that is rooted in the cross and the resurrection. And we we remember that this morning. It's interesting as we think about Joseph's story and, and, and Jerry's story, the, the title of Jerry's book was A Grace Disguised, which is a great, great title. Max says in God's hands, intended evil becomes eventual good. Both those things are on full display at the cross. You saw the cross and the degradation and the shame and the horror of it and it was all those things, but embedded in the cross, was a grace disguise. So let's remember that as uh, we look back at what Jesus did for us to look forward at, at what's coming. Uh, so go ahead and, and gather your elements, whatever you're going to use uh, for, to represent the bread, the body, and and uh, and the grape juice, of wine, and, and the blood of Christ, and you can take it however you feel comfortable taking it. The scriptures tell us in the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup, said this cup is the sign of the new covenant, which is given in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You may go ahead and take the elements.